Good evening. Welcome to Socrates in the City on Broadway. Yeah, I, I know. Look, I don't want to be here uh, any more than you do, so let's just get through this. Um, let me say that again. Welcome to Socrates in the City on Broadway, the thinking cultured person's alternative to Mamma Mia. And, and of course, goes without saying, anything with an Elton John score. Right. Uh, by the way, I want to say this up front. If you are uh, seated in a seat that seems less good than other empty seats, does that make sense? It's kind of mathematical, I know. Um, you can go to those better seats in, uh, give it a few minutes, because we've got some latecomers. But there are a number of little pockets of seats that I think uh, you might avail yourself of when you do that. Anyway, whatever, uh, seriously, I am thrilled to be here tonight. I am just giddy, and I think I have to say it, uh, to be quite honest with you, it has less to do with the event than, than with the fact that I've been just combining caffeine and dexedrine, uh, and it's just working. I'm flying right now. I'm, I'm just freaking flying right up here. I'm flying. Um, wow. Uh, speaking of flying, have you turned in your comment cards? In the next, like, two minutes, no, no kidding, that's 120 seconds for those of you who didn't know that, um, hand in your comment cards. You don't have to have a question, but if you have a question, now is the time, because the movie's going to start in just a few moments. At that point, it's over. So if you've got a question you'd like to throw it into the mix, uh, to be honest with you, I'll probably ignore it anyway, but give it a shot. You never know. You might say something that surprises me, which is vaguely interesting. Not going to happen, but give it a shot and see what happens. And uh, if you want to put your email on there, um, we'd like to stay in touch with you if the question's good. So, thank you. Um, I am, uh, in fact, <laughs> thanks, Jim. I am thrilled to be here uh, for uh, other reasons than the, uh, the dexogen and the caffeine. Not many other reasons, but, but a few. One is that uh, if everything goes as planned, which is not going to happen, uh, this will be an amazing evening. But even if it doesn't go quite as planned, and of course it already hasn't, uh, it'll still be an amazing evening because... We've never done this before, and we've always wanted to do it. Uh, and by the way, the people sitting in the back row up there, there are other seats uh, right near the front of the balcony, so help yourself. Um, there's also donuts uh, in the back room there. Um, <laughs> Socrates in the City, in case you're unfamiliar with the whole idea of Socrates in the City, is dedicated to the concept that it's a good idea to think somewhat more deeply uh, and at greater length, um, about the big questions of life. That's the idea be behind Socrates in the city. Socrates rather famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living, and sort of exhorts us to think a little bit more deeply about what it is to be human, uh, who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, all that kind of stuff. It's an ongoing conversation, uh, at least for us it is. We've had many events. And um, it's, it's an ongoing conversation on what, what I like to call life, God, and other small topics. You know, the big stuff, right? Uh, up till now, we've had this ongoing conversation somewhat exclusively through lectures. Uh, we've done about 30 brilliant lectures in the past six years. And, and you know, let's face it, we've pretty much mastered the genre. Um, if you don't know what genre means, it's much less funny, but genre really uh, is the punchline. Um, we've mastered the genre. There's simply nothing new to be done there. The vein is, as it were, empty. 
the brilliant lecture vein I'm referring to. Uh, so we'd now like to take a crack at doing something new and untested, something we might perhaps do in a genuinely amateurish way. And so here we are, uh, ready to watch a film and have a panel discussion and get, you know, like totally crazy. Because uh, just we're expanding our repertoire, and it's a very scary thing. Um, so tonight, my friends, represents the future of Socrates in the city, and strangely enough, the future of Socrates in the city represents tonight. I have no idea what that means, but mathematically, I think it makes sense. Yes, that was a really good chuckle in the front row. That's why I love you, my friend, Norman. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, a few people thought the increased uh, ticket prices were a little futuristic, and... Uh, <laughs> Oh, that gets the laugh. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you guys are thinking like $75 is about right for 2014, right? But uh, no, we're, we're, you know, I think you need to understand, as every dumb commercial will tell you, the future is now. Uh, we're too busy to sit around, you know, waiting uh, for the future to get here. Who's got the time to do that, really? Um, we've got to be proactive and go get the future. Do you hear what I'm saying? We've got to go get the future, bring it to us, and that's what the higher prices are all about. It's about grabbing the future by the lapels, as it were, and saying, hey, future, who's your daddy? <laughs> and, of course, the answer is, Socrates in the city is your daddy. Mr. Future, big shot. Socrates in the city is your daddy. That's right. Uh, okay, no, of course, I'm kidding. The increased prices are mostly fuel surcharges. Um, <laughs> thank you, yeah. What are you going to do, you know? The, a the actual price is still just about the same, but uh, with attention over Iran and all of the unstable uh, mullahs, and you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. That's their peace, uh, peaceful, unstable mullahs, you know. But um, good people, ultimately, behind all the violence. And you have to understand that uh, with, with that kind of tension going on over there in Iran, uh, we, we just sort of felt we had to somehow take action and pass along some of that tension to our customers. Uh, and it's our, it's our privilege to do that. Thank you for being with us. Um, now, tonight's film is something I'm terribly excited about, in case you didn't see uh, the flurry of uh, emails. We've never done anything like this, as I said. And after tonight, I think you'll know exactly why that is. It says pause for the laugh, so, you know. Um, tonight, as you, I hope you already know, we, uh, we have the high honor of having a screening of C.S. Lewis Beyond Narnia. Now, as far as I'm concerned, it's the Manhattan premiere of this film, uh, except it was shown at Trinity Church Wall Street in December. But anybody in showbiz knows that you cannot premiere a film in a church <laughs> because that's against the separation of church and showbiz. Uh, and also, anything below uh, Houston Street, technically, that's uh, Staten Island. Uh, and if you look on a map, uh, Staten Island is practically New Jersey. So really, that was kind of the mid-Atlantic premiere. This is the New York premiere of this film. Uh, and I will in Indian wrestle any one of these big-shot producers who wants to, uh, to disagree with me. Uh, I should, should mention uh, some of our big shot, I mean, sorry, special uh, guests. Uh, we have uh, with us in this historic theater uh, the executive producers of the film, or I think two-thirds of them. Uh, we have Mr. Ed Murray with us. Ed, you got to wave. You're the executive producer of this film. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Mr. Bill Riley. Where did he go, Bill? Bill, the other executive producer. 
Uh, thank you. And, and Jeff Weber, the third executive producer, could not be with us. He's like working at a Starbucks or something because uh, this film has not been turning out the coins. Norman, you got to start. That's not right. Producer working at Starbucks. He cannot be here. I should also mention uh, Karen uh, Pascal, but I will not. Uh, just refuse. Sorry, Karen. We're friends, and I, I'm going to have to do that. Um, the writer of the film. Do films have writers? Fascinating. Uh, the writer of the film, Mr. Kenneth Cavender, was here. Where did he go? Kenneth? Yes, he's right here. And co-producer. Uh, also, Andy Hunt, who was the first assistant on the film. Is that correct, Andy? The coffee guy. There you go. And, of course, the director, Mr. Norman Stone, is with us tonight. Yes, yes. Norman, there you go. Stand, you can stand up. You're the director. Please. That's the director of the film. Yes. Now, Norman, in case he hasn't already told you himself, and he won't, is a genius. Uh, he is the man, if you read in your programs, who brought Shadowlands to the world. Uh, and in some ways, Shadowlands is, is what brought C.S. Lewis to much of the world, at least that part of the world that doesn't read a damn thing. That dim-witted part of the world that doesn't deserve C.S. Lewis. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, but truly, uh, his 1985 Shadowlands for the BBC is a masterpiece, uh, as are so many of his films that I have the privilege to see, uh, and it's a joy to have him with us this evening. Uh, as I've said, the provenance of Socrates and City has much to do with C.S. Lewis. I hope I communicated that in some of the emails. Socrates, as I said, said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And there are few people who've devoted their lives more totally uh, to examining the big questions, the meaning of life, the big questions of what it is to be human, uh, more than C.S. Lewis did. Um, it's no coincidence that Lewis knew Socrates and Plato intimately, uh, not in any untoward way, uh, but he knew their work, I believe. Um, yeah, <clears throat> right. Um, Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's no coincidence many of our previous Socrates speakers have been C.S. Lewis scholars. Peter Kraft, who's been with us a few times. Tom Howard, who's with us tonight. Oz Guinness. Armand Nikolai, who spoke to us on the worldviews of Freud and Lewis. And rather recently, we had Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein talking about C.S. Lewis and the abolition of man. So, as I say, it's only fitting that we at Socrates would begin our foray into the world of film and panel discussions with Lewis and what could be more fitting than a film on Lewis by the man who brought us Shadowlands? I actually uh, could think of a few things, but we could not afford those other things, Norman. So you're it. Sorry. But in the future, uh, we will. Um, now, of course, Norman Stone is a friend. That's why I, I uh, joke with him like this. He was in New York for the filming of a lot of uh, this film. Um, because a lot, of the, a lot of the folks he wanted to get to live uh, in New York because we're that kind of a hip uh, Christian kind of town. And um, actually, um, that's a lie. Um, but no, he did, he did uh, come here. Uh, some of the talking uh, heads we're going to see in our film in a few moments uh, are here tonight, along with their bodies and the whole, the whole nine yards. Uh, we don't have them all. James Cosmo, he's working uh, also the night shift at Dwayne Reed. And he's a professor. You've got to do extra stuff. So, uh, Jimmy, how you doing? Um, but we do have two of these so-called talking heads with us tonight. Uh, first of all, all, we have Ms. Belle Kaufman right here, if you would wave to the people. Um, now, w when Norman uh, was here, Norman Stone was here filming uh, 
this film. Um, he told me that he's going to go, he's going, I'm going up to Park Avenue and I'm going to film this woman. She knew Joy Davidman. And I thought, wow, really? That's, a, that's amazing. But Norman doesn't lie. And I thought, that's just what a wonderful thing. And who is this and whatever. And, and that's all I got. Um, so when we were going to do this event tonight, I said, what, what a joy it would be. What an amazing thing to get uh, Belle Cowfin to be here with us. And I did a little research, and um, I realized that Norman really had told me nothing about uh, who this amazing woman was. Knowing uh, Joy Davidman is kind of like a footnote of a footnote of, of, of all uh, she's done and been. I, I found out that uh, Belle Kaufman wrote, she's the author of the super bestseller movie, um, Up the Down Staircase, which some of you have heard of. She's the author of that. Sold only six million copies, but I know it's going to keep selling. Uh, and it was only translated into 16 languages. I'm so sorry. But uh, I, I just believe it's going to go to 18. Um, but not only that, the one, the one thing that really gets me is, is I found out that she is the granddaughter of Sholem Aleichem, that giant of Yiddish-Jewish uh, literature. I, I simply couldn't believe that. I had to kind of... Uh, I really gave Google a hard time over that fact, I have to tell you. I just didn't believe it. And, um, but then I saw a picture of you with this man who was born in 1859 and whose work uh, ultimately gave us Fiddler on the Roof. Just, just amazing. And if you don't know who uh, Sholem Aleichem is, you know, you might, you might think about turning off the TV now and again and crack a book. Let me just say, just, as, just a piece of advice. I'm not telling you how to live, but you need to, you need to stop living the way you're living. Um, <laughs> But we couldn't be more thrilled to have uh, Belle Kaufman here tonight. I learned just last night, Belle, that uh, you had actually spent time at the kilns with Joy Davidman and with C.S. Lewis toward the end of Joy's life. You lived at the kilns with C.S. Lewis. Now, is there anybody else here who lived with C.S. Lewis? Because really now would be the time to kind of, you know, fly your freak flag and let everybody know. Uh, There's like eight guys in the balcony. I don't believe it. You guys are teenagers. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, that's, I want to ask you about that during our panel discussion, which we will be having. Um, another very dear friend who's going to be on our panel, Dr. Thomas Howard. My goodness, Tom Howard is the C.S. Lewis guy. Peter Kraft, who is an amazing C.S. Lewis scholar, um, has said that the best book on C.S. Lewis is written by Tom Howard, you got it. Um, I think we have those books downstairs. I hope we do. Tom is also the author of one of my favorite books. If you have to go to the moon and can bring five books, Chance or the Dance has to be one of them. It is extraordinary. I'm going to be teaching that book uh, at King's College in the fall. Is the president of King's College here? Just want to give him a little tip. That's going to be happening under your authority, pal. Um, so anyway, I worship Tom Howard's writing. It's a joy to have him here. I met him on the Maudlin Quad at Oxford at the beginning of the C.S. Lewis Conference in 1998. We've been uh, friends ever since. And if you don't know him or know his work, uh, take advantage of uh, his being here this evening. Now, of course, Tom and the other talking heads uh, gave Norman and his crew hours of brilliant commentary on C.S. Lewis. Uh, but most of it ended up on the cutting room floor. That's just the way it is with brilliant commentary, right? When you've got a a 54-minute film. I also gave the film unbelievably brilliant commentary, and I'm the only one who can say that every single frame of it ended up on the cutting room floor. (laughs) And now it's it's in a landfill across the river. So 
That's true. That's true. Uh, all right, now we come to Mr. Anton Rogers. Before I can introduce Anton, I have to tell you a story that's a bit off the point very quick. When I was seven years old in 1970, my grandmother took me to Radio City Music Hall to see The Christmas Show, which was presented with a feature film. Back in those days, you could get a full feature film in a spectacular Christmas extravaganza for a nickel in 1970. That's true. Um, that's not true. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was much bigger than the extravaganzas you get today. The extravaganzas today are nothing compared to what we got back then. Um, Back then, there were, there were so many rockettes, they literally did not have room for most of the audience. And, um, but fortunately, my grandmother and I at the time were rockettes. So we... Uh... And you know, you got all that entertainment, and if you didn't love it, they gave you your nickel back. That's true. That's what life was like in the hard scrabble 1970s. And you punk kids, you don't know, uh, it's just you're spoiled today. But anyway, that film, I remember it was a cold day, and this is long before global warning, there was icebergs all over 6th Avenue. And, uh, you know, because of Bush, they're all gone now. So that's the world we live in. Welcome to, you know, Bush's America, no icebergs on 6th Avenue. But anyway, I remember the film uh, Scrooge starring Albert Finney. I'm just curious, how many people have seen the musical Scrooge starring Albert Finney? Not that many Americans, a few, a few here. Um, but I remember uh, it was an amazing film, and if you have to travel back in time and go to the theater to see it, please do, uh, or, or rent the video, whatever. But the point is, you should see it because it's fantastic. And there's one thing that people always remember from that film, if they don't remember anything else, I'm talking to you, Rich, uh, is there's a song that goes, thank you very much, thank you very much. You remember that, right? Pretend, to, pretend you do. Um, but actually, that's the one thing people always say. I remember that song. It's amazing. It's extravaganza, whatever. And um, every year, I watch the film, and that's, that's my favorite part. So when Norman was making his film, he told me uh, that he would have the C.S. Lewis character talking to the camera. And I said, you know, that's a bad idea, Norman. Now, I've never directed a film. But uh, I thought, you know, you were, you were wrong. And of course, uh, Karen Pascal, whom we're not going to mention, sent me the DVD. And I popped it in, and sure enough, the C.S. Lewis character is talking to the camera. That's Anton talking to the camera. And it was utterly brilliant. Everything about it was just amazing. And I, I said, wow, you know, Norman, I'll never second guess you. You're a genius. I don't know how you find these actors. I don't know how you direct them this way. It's just absolutely brilliant. And the whole time, uh, I was watching this actor, whom you'll see in a moment, Mr. Anton Rogers, uh, being C.S. Lewis, I was amazed, absolutely amazed at, at the performance. And something in my mind was nagging. I said, it's as if I know this man, as if I knew him a long time ago. And I, I, it just drove me crazy. And then a light bulb, right toward the end of the movie, l literally sprouted above my head. Literally, Dola, literally. And I said, I know who this man is. This is none other then Tom Jenkins, the hot soup man who sings Thank You Very Much in my favorite movie in the world. And it was one of those moments in life where you don't know what to do with yourself. I was just out of my mind with joy, all alone, watching this uh, DVD on my, on my laptop. It's, it's sad, isn't it? Um, but I was absolutely so touched. And this, this ties in uh, to, to Lewis a bit, because it was, it was very moving. It was a very odd experience. It was though someone who had died a long time ago, suddenly had come back to life, as if time itself had been defeated, and the 35 years since I was seven had been erased. It was very moving for me. 
Uh, I say that because Lewis's writing has to do always with this idea of escape, escaping time, of rediscovering innocence once lost, the idea of joy or, or Sehnsucht, the German word, this longing for you know not what, for a mythical past, for a fairyland just beyond your conscious mind, a place outside of time. Of course, that's exactly what Narnia is all about. Uh, it's about that longing to escape the strictures of time, to go back to childhood, to escape mortality and death and the sadness of life. Um, of it, it, in a way, to achieve something better than childhood, something of which childhood is only a picture. Think of that. Um, something magical and beautiful, the place of fairy tales and dreams. And it's a place ultimately not in our heads, but in our hearts. And that's what's so fascinating about Lewis, the brightest man on the planet, uh, focused right on that. Um, of course, for Lewis, the, the Christian faith uh, was, was that place, ultimately the road to that place. He initially found faith on a long midnight walk with Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, in a beautiful place um, called Addison's Walk behind his buildings in Oxford. You can go there today. Magical place, Addison's Walk. And there's a plaque there. It was put there in 1998 um, with one of Lewis's poems that, for me, sums this all up, uh, this convergence of, of uh, longing for something beyond, for this fairy tale world. Uh, where mended hearts are broken, uh, desires at last realize. And I thought I would read that uh, poem, and then we can uh, roll the film. And then, of course, after that, we will have um, our panel discussion. So let me just read that. The title of that poem is What the Birds Said Early in the Year. I heard in Addison's walk a bird sing clear. This year the summer will come true. This year, this year. Winds will not strip the blossom from the apple trees this year, nor want of rain destroy the peas. This year, time's nature will no more defeat you, nor all the promised moments in their passing cheat you. This time, they will not lead you round and back to autumn, one year older, by the well-worn track. This year, this year, as all these flowers foretell, we shall escape the circle and undo the spell. Often deceived, yet open once again your heart. Quick, 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 the gates are drawn apart. What a privilege to be sitting up here with these four people. I know I'm not equal to it, so I got something going for me. Um, I hope you enjoyed that film a tenth as much as I did because then you loved it. Um, I, have, I have some cards here from some of you. If any of you uh, have other cards which you failed to give up when I asked you to, would you, would you give them up now? Would you do that, now that you've seen the film? Um, pass them to the ushers, and they'll dispose of them. <laughs> no, that's not true at all. I'll dispose of them personally. I, uh, no, actually, uh, we, we have room for some, uh, some questions. If anybody has a question, write it down on a card and hustle it to an usher. Thank you. Thank you. That's a lousy question, though. I, I need some good ones. No, this is actually, I haven't read it. Um, okay, in the interest of time, I will shut up and ask a few questions of this glorious group of uh, friends and a new friend. Uh, thank you for being with us uh, at our first Socrates in the City on Broadway. We've not done panel discussions before. Uh, I hope we, uh, we figure out how to do them. Uh, I have a number of questions. Um, I want to start with the director 
of the film. Now, which one of you directed this thing? Because that's going to help me. Um, no, I think... I think Norman Stone is the guilty party. And I'm going to ask you first, Norman, if you would share with the group. Um, it's a banal question, but it has to be asked. What led you to do this film? We know that you did Shadowlands, which deals with the end of Lewis's uh, life and his relationship with Joy. What, what, uh, tell us the story behind what led to this, b- besides the Disney Narnia, Narnia juggernaut that was, you know, uh, a couple of months ago. Well, um, when, when I wanted to do Shadowlands, I began working on it in 1980 as an idea. Um, and my original intention was to do the whole of Lewis's life. Um, I, I knew about it. It was a fascinating um, background to the man and insight into his work. And if you take A Grief Observed and Surprised by Joy and look at the facts in those two books, you get an amazing sort of potential scenario. Um, as it happened, we got more money, very rare for the BBC to get more money, but we had such a little anyway, uh, that bizarrely in the upside-down upside world of television, we, um, that meant that we specialised in less. We actually made Shadowlands, which was about the relationship with Joy Davidman, because we could do that properly rather than what I thought originally was going to happen, which was be just a quick sprint through Lewis's life. So I was very happy with that, and then Shadowlands took off, and then it became a play, and then it became a film. Um, but you know what? There was a sort of a... I felt, I'll be honest, I, I felt there was a thinning out of Lewis's faith and some of his life that since I did the research originally and since I cared very much about him, it left me a little concerned. And I felt maybe there should be something at some point that redresses the balance. We look at the whole of his life in his own words, let him speak for himself. And these thoughts were going through my mind when these two guys at the front and the producer, Karen Pascal, phoned up and said how about doing a film about uh, C.S. Lewis? And I said, what about him? He said, his whole life. So 25 years late, I finally got around to making the film of his whole life. And that's basically it. Well, we're pretty glad you did, I think. Um, I'm fascinated by being able to actually tell the story of a man's life in, what was it, 56 minutes? Yeah, the, uh, was the, that the, a challenge? Yes, the A&E. Not the A&E, sorry. The Hallmark version. Hush my mouth. It uh, was 42 minutes. It was 42 minutes. Was Tom Howard in that at all? He spoke faster. He spoke faster. Unbelievable. They just speeded him up. Did Bell make the cut on that one? <laughs> and, and, here's an, and here's another question, extra credit. If it were 90 minutes long, would I have been in it? <laughs> Thank you. Well, no. We're going to move on. Yeah, we're going to move on. I know, I know. We're going to move on. All right. Uh, what about 110 minutes? Be honest. All right. Um, uh, Anton, I've had enough of Norman. I don't know about you, but uh, I'd like to, uh, like to, first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. What a joy uh, to have you here, and what a joy uh, to have you here after having watched this performance again. I want to ask you, you, you were telling me a little bit last night about your way into this character. It was a very actorly sort of thing that you were saying, but I, what, what does Lewis mean to you as an actor? How did you interpret it? What did you find in him, uh, what interested you in him, uh, things of that nature. You, you touched on that last night. It struck me as very interesting. Well, uh, firstly, um, I had a sort of preparation for this uh, several years earlier by, by actually doing Shadowlands. Hello. Thank you. Yes, that's better. Um, I'd done Shadowlands for quite a lengthy tour. 
And I'd, I'd, occasionally you get a situation as an actor where things come together. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's so exciting because you suddenly don't have to act. You just become. And I found um, when I, I was offered this by Norman, it was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, because it was just a, it was total joy. I didn't uh, consciously work out anything. I just went with the text. And with, with Norman directing, you know, quite honestly, you can't go wrong. Well, you know, we, we know you, you uh, wanted to do it and, because mm. we know it didn't pay well. <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, thing my lawyers are talking about. The Hallmark about people, it. they're not... <laughs> but, uh, now, by the way, can everyone hear when, when Anton is speaking? Is it, can you hear up there in the balcony? Um, well, I just... There is... Something about, you know, uh, we wa- we've watched, we were talking uh, yesterday about uh, very, the facilities that different actors have in mimicking. And you didn't mimic Lewis. You didn't try to do uh, his accent. But you, f- you found a, a, a different way into him. Uh, what, w- w- when you're playing a man like that, what, what, what does it feel like doing that? I'm just fascinated by the idea that you sort of become him I, I don't for, know. I think I think the, the the one thing that I did find that I had to temper down was bitterness, because it was such an extraordinary thing that happened to him, in that he'd never shown emotion. I think that was the key to it. He'd never shown emotion as a child, because he didn't understand it. He didn't know how to. So what he did was he bottled it, and he bottled it for several years, and suddenly into his life came joy. And he, he couldn't, he had to give in to another being. He had to give control of himself to something else that he'd always dealt with perfectly well, very well, in fact. He'd become immensely successful. And suddenly this woman came in and he found he was helpless. And it, it almost destroyed him. And I, I, we've talked about this, about Shadowlands. That the, the Shadowlands is about the renewal of faith, as this was. It's not about uh, what a lovely love story. That's part of it. But there's something much deeper than that in terms of C.S. Lewis, I think, which is that he managed to regain this faith, having been dealt this devastating blow of her death. And to, to actually having have the opportunity to play that as an actor is God-given, I promise mm. you. <laughs> well, um... In, in a good Merv Griffin style, we're going to move down the couch to Jamie Farr. No, I'm sorry. To my dear friend. He's not Jamie Farr. I tried to fool you. Uh, Farr has a whole different nose, an aquiline, uh, Middle Eastern sort of nose. You are Tom Howard, my favorite C.S. Lewis scholar. And you, sir, I would like to ask you, this is the $64,000 question. There's no right answer. What does Lewis mean to you? I can ask more specific questions, but I want to hear you answer that because you've written so much on him and I'm in awe of your understanding of him. Look, truly, could, could I, I am. Could I preface, is this thing on? Yes. Could I preface what I say just with a quick comment about the movie? I have never seen such a convincing performance in my life. I have never felt...
there's no disjuncture between um, Anton and Lewis. And, and the entire movie, I felt, um, it's, a, it's a word I often think of with respect to Mozart when I'm listening to Mozart. There's some, it's, it's the word tact. The, it's the, that absolutely flawless sense of what is appropriate, what is apposite, which avoids absolutely sentimentalism mm. and pyrotechnics on the other side and so on. Uh, anyway, I just uh, felt that way about the movie and I hope everyone here did. What Lewis means to me, uh, I would say that Lewis, um, as it were, took me, my mind, uh, my imagination uh, to the window that leads out from uh, the dark and claustrophobic room of modernity and blew open the shutters um, and, said, and said to me, look, uh, out on, onto this vista. Uh, virtually all of his books uh, have spoken to me of, of glory. And I, I think I would have to... Um, credit Lewis with, with uh, shaping uh, not just one's imagination, but uh, really my, my vision of God and of the world and of everything. Well, I mean, there's no way to do this justice, so I'll simply say again to the, to the folks, if you, if you get a chance to read uh, Tom's book on Lewis, published by Ignatius Press, or his book Chancellor the Dance, which uh, in some ways touches on all of this, uh, it's very, it's, <laughs> it's like more Lewis. Um, I, w I recommend it to you. Uh, Tom, before Belle uh, Kaufman uh, totally one-ups you with her spending all this time uh, at the kilns, uh, it's going to happen, you know, any, any moment. So I, I figured before that, tell, um, uh, tell us, you, you, I, what, you know, this is just the way most people are, certainly the way I am. I'm simply fascinated by the fact that you actually met C.S. Lewis, and I want to ask you to tell me about the experience. I know David Young is here, and it was uh, 1963. T tell us, Tom, about your experience of, of meeting Lewis. Well, I was teaching school uh, at a boys' school in England, and David Young and I were always friends. Wave, David, or something. David can't be that old. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. Uh, and David was uh, studying at, at Queen's College, Oxford, then, and I went down from Cheshire where I was living and I think I stayed in your rooms, didn't I, David? Or some, something awful. But uh, I had had correspondence with Lewis over the years starting from the time that I was in the Army uh, back here in the States and we had corresponded back and forth and being young and brash, I uh, finally, in a postcard, said, I'm going to be in Oxford uh, during the Easter vac, as they call it, and uh, could I just pop out to the kilns and see you? Uh, and he uh, acted as though there was nothing that would delight him more. I've heard that that was, uh, I mean, that was part of his generosity and uh, merriment and sainthood, really. He just treated the great unwashed public who beat a path to his door in those days as though he was just delighted. So I went out, he told me what bus to get and where to get off. And in those days, if you've been to Oxford recently and, and tried to make a visit to the kilns, you know that I think it's surrounded with houses now. I haven't uh, 
if you want to call them houses. Novel. But it was it sat all by itself uh, along a lane, just surrounded with trees, and there was a pond behind it. And I got off the bus and walked up the lane and knocked on the door. And uh, Lewis himself came, and he was exactly what you uh, have would imagine uh, in your most wonderful imaginations. He was that. He had this great rubicund face and twinkly eyes and a great bell-like voice and uh, appalling tweeds, baggy tweeds, uh, and so on. And he said, Mr. Howard. And uh, so we went in. And did you film some of that in the kilns or not? That it was room? all filmed in the kilns. The kilns yeah. scenes were his, his house, the kilns. Yeah, well, that's the room where we sat, uh, I think. Uh, the when, common room. When yeah. Douglas comes in and, and, and they're crying. Yeah, that was the because uh, I recognized the the shape of the room and the fireplace and so on. And what did you uh, there do? We we talked. <laughs> uh, I uh, asked him about all sorts of things. We talked uh, about his books, of course. Uh, we talked about purgatory, and we talked. Uh, Is he uh, pro or con on the purgatory thing? <laughs> He's. He said to me, there might be such a place. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, that was among the uh, Catholic doctrines that he did espouse. Uh, and then I ventured uh, timorously uh, that his favorite book, uh, to me, my favorite of his books, was Till We Have Faces. And uh, much to my delight, uh, he said that was his favorite. So anyway... That's, that's the gist of it. Did you have tea? No, actually. Oh, we just I said it in the program that you did have tea. Well, you let's should've... just... Well, we had spiritual tea. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he didn't give you a cup of tea. Well, now um, we come to the jewel in the crown. Belle, um, it is an honor to have you with us here. I am thrilled that, uh, that you came and... Um, Delighted to know about your relationship with Joy. Tell us about, uh, I want to know specifically about your time uh, at the kilns while Joy was so ill. What, what was that like? Well, first, I'd like to chide you. This is the first time in my 95 years I've been called a talking head. <laughs> No, I, I just want to to say that when I saw this film again, I've seen it more than once, and I was so moved. But each time I see myself on any screen, I say to myself, why is that homely old woman wearing my dress? <laughs> no reflection on you. You did a beautiful job. Well, as far as the film is concerned, I feel like an actor who played the character of Osric in Hamlet. If you recall Hamlet, a very minor character who spends a half a minute on the stage. This actor was met by a friend who asked him, what are you in? He said, I'm in Hamlet. Oh, he said, I never saw, I never read the play. You didn't? Well, what is it about? It's about this character, Osric, who... <laughs> that was my role. But I do 
want to tell you that the honor is mine. I feel very privileged to be here. I was a friend of Joy Davidman's. That's how obliquely, peripherally, I met Lewis, and it's true. I lived with C.S. Lewis for a few days in the kilns when I visited Joy. Did you Joy was him? my classmate at Hunter College. She was beautiful. She was very, very bright. And she was a rebel. Among us in those days, that was a long time ago in the 30s, uh, Hunter College was a college for women only, and we were all meek and obedient. Joy was the rebel. She was a fascinating young woman. But you want to know about my seeing her with Lewis. She was already very ill. She was lying in a hospital bed in the kilns. And she was very much in love with Jack Lewis. He was called Jack. And it's true, she said to me, now I know the movies and the poets are right. It exists. Jack Lewis told a very risque story. I think I may tell it to this audience. <laughs> I, said, I also oh, think it, you may tell it to this group. Is it all yeah. right? Is it all right for your American friend to hear this story? She said, no. "Oh, yes, she's all right." It seems that there was a women's college next to the college where Jack taught. And the women at the college put on a performance of Midsummer Night's Dream. Jack Lewis was invited as a guest. After the performance, he was asked his opinion. And here he harumphed a lot. He even blushed. And he said, <coughs> I, I, I said that it was the first time I was privileged to see a female bottom. That's it. You know, to work Osric in bottom into five minutes, this is supposed to be about C.S. Lewis, is fascinating. And... Uh, it's right on the edge there, Bill, right on the edge. We're going to let you get away with it, but uh, it's not right. We're not here to celebrate Shakespeare, but I know what you mean. Um, we have so little time. Um, I just, um, we ha I have a question. I, my guess is that the only person who can answer this question on this panel, maybe no one can answer this question, but uh, it's, it's a conundrum, and it comes right out of the this sort of... Uh, feisty, sassy woman that you describe, and then my friend Diane Venora doing such a great job of, of uh, playing that part, the idea that she would challenge him, and obviously he was probably not so used to being challenged, certainly not by a woman, and I love the idea of, of uh, asking, that she asked him <laughs> about the, the beavers and where they got the food from, Is that, was that in this version, right? Um, uh, 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 Justin Homko, who pretty much does everything... Uh, about Socrates in the city, everything except hold the microphone this minute, everything else he did, uh, came up with a question which uh, I found very troubling. And the question was this. Probably, Tom Howard, you can answer this, or at least we can ruminate on it. But in the Narnia Chronicles, uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, obviously uh, we have the scene uh, played by 
James Como, incredible actor in the movie, but uh, where Father Christmas appears in Narnia. And I know that Tolkien seems to have had a problem with that. That was just one example of the kind of thing that Tolkien would have had a problem with because it was such a confusing thing throwing in all these different characters. But the question is, um, what would Christmas, and there may be no answer to this question, but what would Christmas mean? What sense does it make, the concept of a father Christmas in a place like Narnia where the Messiah figure is Aslan? Can you... uh, Speculate on that, Tom, because that's just uh, been troubling me. Well, <laughs> that, that is what's called a sticky wicket. Uh, and uh, I've just been reading Tolkien's letters, and indeed he, he was scandalized by Lewis putting Father Christmas in there. And even before I knew that uh, Tolkien uh, took a shaky view of Father Christmas, it, it is the one uh, point, the one element... <laughs> in the entire corpus of Lewis's works that, that I have run aground on. Uh, I think I could speculate uh, and give the reason, unless somebody else knows, is there any place in Lewis's work where he actually makes a rationale for Father Christmas? In his, in his own work? Yeah. Does, does he no, pipe but he up? Does, and, he does use Merlin in the, that hideous strength, and he seems to sort of dip into yes, uh, myth. But I think Merlin, uh, I mean, Merlin gives a lot of, people trouble in that hideous strength. Uh, I would defend that. Uh, but I, I, I do think Father Christmas is, is a figure f- from our world, and Lewis himself would say Narnia is not our world. And uh, I, mean, I hate to introduce a, a, a dismal note here, but I, I, I myself am one of the ones who, who doesn't think it quite works, but I'm sure I'll be shouted down by the no, whole he, audience. He was writing for kids, of course. For, for yes. children. Indeed. For children. Uh, yeah, I felt very strongly about this when we did it, didn't I? Yeah. The, the, the difference was that Tolkien wrote it for himself. That's true. He did. Whereas he specifically wrote this, the, the Narnia stories for the children. But don't you think he, you, don't, you don't think that he did violence to the, to the glorious fabric that he was creating here? Uh, by I mean, I, of course, the children would be enchanted. Yes. Uh, and, and obviously it works, and I think I uh, am a minority of one here, uh, because I, I think I would applaud Lewis uh, to the extent of saying, you've done something there that obviously delights the children. Mm. But maybe on a, uh, a curmudgeonly view, from the standpoint of literary criticism, which one does not want to bring to bear on these glorious stories, <laughs> yes. uh, I've... I think, it, I think it would be like uh, Mozart sticking an electric guitar into the Requiem. To, because, that's, that's because he's writing for the children. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. It would be just as wrong. Anton, as the moderator, I, I just decided you're wrong and Tom is right. And I think we'll have to, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry. I think, Tom, uh, we're a minority of two, but we're right, so it's okay. Um, well, uh, very unfortunately, we have no more time for this, but this conversation can continue because I'm going to whisk, as Tom Howard, I would say whisk, but I'm going to whisk uh, these four uh, glorious individuals downstairs to the grill room where we have a reception at which this conversation uh, can and will continue. Yes, Can, Norman, can I just sir? let the cat out of the bag in one way? Please, sir. Um, not many people know that Anton actually did marry Joy Davidman. 
because when he was playing Shadowlands around the, uh, the, the, the British theatres, he met Joy Davidman, who became his wife, the wonderful actress, Liz Garvey. That's right. So yes, that's he did actually, actually true. We should ask questions That's true. That's true. The thing that's that crazy. Happens, the thing that just... One minute. The, the thing that happens, you see, uh, if you're lucky as an actor, is that it takes over your life to such a degree that you don't have any control at all. You know... <laughs> You just say, I'll go with it, and you go with it, and it works, and you're amazed, absolutely. You know? And you've got to have be directed by him, though. That's the main thing. Well, a um, couple of quick comments, and, and we really do have to march, because what will happen is we'll, we'll get stuck here. I want everyone to continue the conversation downstairs in the grill room, where there are way better hors d'oeuvres than you'll get at any of those clubs, trust me, uh, and no alcohol. Okay. Um, Downstairs, uh, as you know, uh, everyone, I hope, got a, uh, got a DVD. Did everyone get a DVD? Uh, on the way? Show me your DVDs. Good. Um, that DVD is yours uh, to keep or give away. If you'd like other DVDs, uh, they're for sale uh, downstairs at the book table, along with CDs of previous uh, past Socrates uh, events. There's a book table with almost every book that uh, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, ever wrote. Um, I just want to say, uh, if, you, uh, if you have any comments about Socrates in the city on Broadway, first time we've done this, obviously, uh, there are things uh, we would do different. I would like to know what you think. We would like your help in, in figuring out uh, how to make this uh, work as well as it might. Uh, so if you've got any comments, you can also email us. Go to the website, SocratesInTheCity.com, uh, and sign up. If you're not on our email list, you can now very easily sign up right on the home page. Please do that and uh, sign up your friends or tell your friends to sign up because we really do want to keep in touch with you. We want to tell you May 24th, we have Chuck Colson. It's going to be at the Union League Club. Finally, we've wrangled Chuck into showing up only because he was going to be in New York for some, some other thing. I don't know. Uh, maybe his favorite shoemakers here or something. You know, these, these high flyers. But uh, we got Chuck, and uh, he's going to be speaking May 24th on the subject of his new book, which is The Good Life. Um, so mark that down in your calendars, Union League Club. You'll certainly be getting emails about that. And do go uh, to the website. Uh, if you're going to join us for dinner, that's uh, in uh, only sort of a few minutes. Uh, we'll be at the reception for a while. But the dinner is just across the street. Uh, have your dinner tickets with you just in case they, uh, they check uh, at the door. But uh, I'm now going to escort you all you know, uh, downstairs so that they will follow. Uh, and we, we can have the first hors d'oeuvres, which will be piping hot. Uh, but please, uh, another round of applause for these amazing four people. And thank you for coming to Socrates in the City. God bless you.